Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we take a brief pause from the Book of Romans and turn to 1 Corinthians as we learn what the church is to be, what the church should look like, and what God is doing with the church. You can join us by turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Members of One Another. from our study through Romans this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, we'll read this here in just a, just a moment. Um, we're incredibly excited about the fruit that God has been bringing, um, especially in these last few years, um, as we have seen a number of souls come to faith in Christ. God continue to grow this church to where we're looking at land and buildings and such in the future. And, and even over these next couple of weeks, we've got a number of families joining the church. So I thought it might be helpful for us to just take one Sunday and look a little bit at God's design for the church. Ask some of those questions. What is membership? What is uh, the point of this? When we talk about this, what, what, what are we getting at? And so today we're going to look at a little bit of some of those things here. We're going to this will be a topical kind of study, so we're going to be jumping around to all kinds of different places, but I'll show you more um, as we go. Let's read this beginning text together, and then we'll pray, ask for God's blessing. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Please follow along as I read. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Let's pray together. Our holy God, Father, we, we come to you, Lord, sons and daughters, adopted into your family, called by your name, brought to you not because we're good enough, not because we deserve it, but only because of mercy you've shown in Christ. And God, we come to you, to draw near as your people, wanting to worship you, wanting to magnify your name because it is just the hunger of our hearts, O oh God, 
to lift you to the highest place and to show all of the world who you are. But Father, we also come to you as a part of our worship, wanting, oh God, to be built up, wanting to be grown. Our God, we want to be made holy. We want to be equipped to be the people you want us to be. Be the people who are servants and workers and laborers. Father, showing your glory. So God, we we pray all of your purposes. Please accomplish in this time. God, you tell us that the instruction of your word is what brings about our growth, our transformation. And so God, we ask for that to happen. Father, we know there's a, a lot of ways that our enemy wants to distract us, wants us to not benefit from this time. I just ask God that you'll protect and you'll work in such a way that we are grown. I need a thousand gifts of mercy to be able to preach and not drop the table as I'm bringing the food. And Father, all of us as we're here, so many, so many ways that our minds can be distracted. I, I just ask God, give us attention. Give us affection for you. Father, give us the ability to think deeply, to see your truths and be changed by them. And God, any who are here this morning and they have not yet come to Christ, They have not yet turned from their sin and rebellion and embraced Christ. And they need to be born again. God, I ask this will be the time that that happens. Accomplish your works, O Lord, in this time. Give us the ability to see your truths and be changed by them and all for your glory. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. When a man and woman are joined together in marriage and they enter into that covenant, there are some things that instantaneously change. They're brought into a union. A union that even though beforehand they may have been boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance and such, this covenant union brings them into a a new kind of relationship. There's a new dimension to their lives. But there's also a dimension that is sometimes overlooked, and that's the fact that not only have their lives just now been united, but they have now been united to each other's families. They become connected. They become connected with a whole group of people. Some of them close and immediate. Some of them like that crazy uncle that we all have, but united together. And when this happens, there is a new way that they're brought into relationship. And similarly, friends, God uses marriage uh, as an illustration in scripture and in fact tells us that uh, marriage is not just something that God picked out of nowhere and said, you know, that'll work. But God specifically designed marriage as an illustration of greater things, bigger things, eternal purposes. You who are here and you have turned to Christ, that first moment that you came to faith, that first moment that you came to understand the message that the Bible calls the gospel, the message of Christ, the message of the cross, that one message that the Bible centers around and shows is the critical message every soul must understand and believe. You understood that message. You turned from rebellion and you came to place your faith in Christ. You turned and embraced Christ, trusting in him at that moment, that instant that you turn. That is the moment when God forgave you of your sin. God adopted you into his family. And there is this whole world of graces that comes to you. And 
We've been talking about a lot of them as we work through the book of Romans. But one of the things that happens with that adoption is we're brought into the family of God. You become sons and daughters of God and you're brought into union with Christ. Just like that covenant in marriage, one of the things scripture tells us that it points to is the covenant relationship that we come to enter into with God. There is a new dimension to your lives, a new union that you have with him. But there is another part of this as well. At the moment you come into union with Christ, you also come into union with the rest of God's people. You're brought into a family relationship with all the other kids that God has adopted. A Christian man and his wife once adopted two boys from overseas, true story. And on their flight back to the States, they got into a conversation with a woman. And the subject of what they had just done, the adoption came up, and the woman asked them this question. Are they brothers? And the Christian responded, they are now. And the woman said, no, 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 are they brothers? And the man responded, they are now. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. What I mean is, are they brothers? And he said, no, you don't understand. They are now, and that is all that matters. The point that he was getting at is, when adoption takes place, these children do not become second-class family. It's not pretend family. The whole point of adoption is the setting of love on these children in the exact same way as biological. No distinction made. They're every bit as much a part of the family that is there. And listen to me, Christian. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're brought into union with him, but we're also brought into union with all the other kids that got adopted. And that's not second class family. That's not pretend family. It's not like when the Bible speaks of this, calls each other brothers and sisters, but then says, but you know, not really, not like the real thing. No, the Bible speaks of this in a very serious kind of way. We have been brought together to be the people of God, sons and daughters of the King. The New Testament speaks of this with incredible seriousness. Christian, hear me very closely. A major dimension of what it means to follow Christ is the relationship we have with other believers. A major way that we love God is by loving his people. This is taken so seriously that in the book of 1 John, the book of 1 John was written so that you and I would examine our lives. It's, it's made to answer this question, how do I know if I'm truly a Christian? It's a subject the Bible deals with over and over and over again. How to look and see, am I truly on the path of life or am I headed toward destruction? Book of 1 John is meant to answer that question. Greatest explanation I ever heard of that came from Pastor Ben in a sermon about a decade ago. I can still remember some of the things that he said. Here's the way that he explained it. He said, the book of 1 John lays out like road signs. You know how if you, uh, have you ever turned down um, a one-way street going the wrong way? I have, you know, feel like an idiot. When you do that, you got all these signs saying things like, wrong way, turn around, idiot, what were you doing? Okay, you got these road signs that are there. Book of 1 John brings up road signs and says some things like, if you see this sign and this sign and this sign, this is evidence that you are actually headed on the path of destruction. But if you see this sign and this one and this one, 
then have confidence you're on the path that leads to life. One of the signs that the book of 1 John brings up as an examination to know if you are truly in the faith, truly in Christ or not, is our love for the brethren. 1 John will say, if you hate your brother whom you can see, you cannot love God whom you cannot see. God takes this seriously. The relationship of Christian to Christian is a major aspect of what it means to be a Christian. So let's look at some of what God has to say about our relationship with one another in the church that Christ has purchased with his blood. So as we do this, we're going to jump around to some various passages and things I've divided our time into three specific points. Uh, Here they are. I kind of put them in question form if you want to take notes. What is the church to be? What is the church to look like? And what is God doing with the church? We'll work through those one at a time and look at some various passages. So number one, what is the church to be? We started here in 1 Corinthians 12. And what's happening here in this passage is that God is giving us an understanding of how he has designed the church. And he gives us some metaphor here. There are other metaphors that the New Testament uses. And, and by the way, some of the ways that the New Testament speaks of the church, they're not metaphors, they are realities. When the New Testament says that the church is the bride of Christ, that's not a metaphor. There's a real way that we are entering into a covenant union with him uh, in this. But there are some other ways that these metaphors, working illustrations are used. And this is one of them, the body of Christ. The church is like a body. A lot of body parts, a lot of members. Now, I suspect, wasn't able to authenticate this, but I'm, I'm pretty certain our English word membership which isn't just used in terms of the church, but in all kinds of different realms, is taken specifically from this passage right here. That the body being made up of many parts, many members, we become connected with one another. Your arm is a member. Your toes are members. Your spleen, which you cannot see on the outside, is members. And yet all of the members are connected. None of them are independent of one another. There is a connection and a need that each member has for one another. Some of those parts that we have are crucial for survival. Some of them are more along the lines of uh, things that uh, that give delights and even glory, you know, kind of like the beard on a man's face gives glory. But when we look at this, there's some truth that God means for us to pick up as, as we examine this. We here in this particular local church family, we are a body. Now, this also applies to the church universal, the global church. We are connected to believers in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And there are ways, if you think about it, there are ways that different churches are good at different things. And we all kind of contribute to kind of help with the global cause of Christ, the kingdom of God. But the most visible way and the, the quickest application that we have of this is in a local congregation. We are the body of Christ made up of many members, many different gifts, different roles, niches, jobs, parts, ways that we contribute. Our head, listen listen to me, and this is very important. This isn't something to just gloss over. Your church's leaders are not the head of the church. 
King Jesus is the head. We bow to him. He's sovereign. We submit. All of us who are in the body have different roles that we contribute and we make up this body accomplishing what God wants. But there is something that we have to see here with this. Our walk with Christ is not, I repeat, it is not just about me and Jesus. Yes, there is, of course, there is, of course, this incredibly important element of your personal walk with Christ. God wants you to have personal worship. Other days, we'll talk about some of those elements. But I feel like in our day, we tend to understand the personal worship part more than we do this aspect. God did not save you so it could be just you and Jesus. He saved you and he made you a part of a body. And we are members of one another. So when the church talks about membership, if you've got questions about that kind of thing, like why membership? Well, where does this come from? Is it in the Bible? It's coming out of passages like this, which show some things about the way that God designed the church. You know, for instance, think about this. We occasionally will have some believers that we've never met before come visit our church on a Sunday. People vacation in the holiday world. They stop in on one Sunday, never met him before, never going to see him again till we come into the kingdom of heaven. But they stop in, we see them one time. Yeah, there's a way that we have connection with them. We are a part of the part of the universal body of Christ. But we cannot with these strangers who are Christians live out all of the instructions that God gives us for what it means to be a part of a church family, ministering to one another, serving one another, investing in one another, encouraging one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, caring for one another, the fellowship of the body. There's a way that God has designed the local church, designed us to care for one another in a particular kind of way that accomplishes his purposes in us, and his, com- his purposes globally. Friends, there are some ways we will only grow in a context of community, in a context of fellowship and relationship. So sometimes people will ask this question, is membership biblical? You know, did they do that in the early church? Well, I'm not sure whether or not they ever wrote the names down. But we do see the fact that in the early church, they knew who was in. They knew who was a part of the body and who was not. And for instance, if you look at some of the places like 1 Corinthians 5, which talks about church discipline, there's a, there's a passage there where God instructs that church that there was a particular man they were to put out of the church. He was living in rebellion, refused to leave some deliberate disobedience, And so they said, put him out. What was he to be put out of? Well, friends, he was not to be necessarily put out of attendance on a Sunday morning. In fact, they might have even encouraged him to come listen to sermons because that was what is needed more than anything in the man's life. So what was he put out of? He was put outside of what it means to be the body, 
outside of the church family and what it means to be a member. So whether or not the early church ever wrote down a list of names or not, there still was this understanding of in the church body or outside that is there. And so church membership is pretty simply declaring, I want to be in. I want to be a part of this church. I see you all have some rules. I agree to submit to them. I see you all have leaders in authority. Okay, down with that off all. I see you have beliefs. I agree with them. I will hold to them. I need a church family. My soul needs this. God has also called me to minister to others. I want this to be the church family that I am in. Membership is essentially saying, I want this to be the local body that I become a part of. And I know you have all heard at some point, somebody say something along the lines of, Jesus hates institutionalized religion. He just wants relationship with you. We've all heard some version, some form of that. But here's one of the things with statements like that, friends. Whoever says that has either not read the Bible or not carefully read the Bible. It's completely unbiblical. In places like Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Acts 20, the scripture says to uh, the church's overseers, elders, pastors, all those words are used interchangeably. The scripture says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I don't know about you, kind of sounds like Jesus just gave some structure. The appointing of leaders orders on what to do. And then we're told he purchased the church with his blood. If you're to look at places like 1 Timothy 3, you'll see some places where God gives instructions to the churches on how to establish their overseers, pastors, elders, and then what their job's supposed to be. And then a list of qualifications for deacons and the calling them to work. And then the passage ends with this. Listen to how that passage in 1 Timothy 3 finishes up. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Listen to me, friends. The church is not our idea. Jesus didn't invent Christianity and then we invented the church. That's the way a lot of times this is explained. Jesus bled to make the church. Jesus bled to form a people. He spilled his blood to redeem a people and he didn't bleed so that we would all just be separate, ignoring each other. He bled to make a family. He bled to form a kingdom, to gather sons and daughters. And then he tells those sons and daughters, I want you to get along, first of all. I want you to love my other kids and I want you to unite together. Because there are some things that you need to happen inside of your life that can only happen through the church. You're not going to get it anywhere else. And then I have a mission for you. It's a mission that's so big, the only way you're going to be able to do it is by all of you coming together and uniting in this. Listen, friends, the church is the result of what Jesus died to accomplish. Yes, Jesus wants personal relationship with you. Jesus wants you to have a personal walk, but no, Jesus did not save you to stay on your own. 
He saved you to be a part of a people, a kingdom, a nation, a priesthood, a body. And anytime we're tempted to kind of keep the church at arm's length, not really let people in your life or always kind of always keep yourself at some kind of distance, don't want to all the way go in, that's kind of like a, a member of the body, one of the body parts, putting on a tourniquet and constricting the blood flow. There's a way that it is hindering others because there's work that God's laid out for you and it's not happening right now. But it also is a hindrance to your growth. There are some ways God wants to grow you that will only happen in the context of some accountability, community, fellowship, listen, correction from a Christian friend who's close to you and speaks a a word that confronts a belief or an action. There are ways God wants to grow us that can only come in the context of a local body. What does God want the church to be? Well, he's designed us to be a body. Secondly, what should the church look like? Well, this one needs a whole lot more than what we'll have time for today. But let me, let me bring up a couple of categories. One of the easiest ways to say it is this. The church should look like what he made us to be. New Testament does that a lot, doesn't it? God says, I've called you holy, now go be holy. I've counted you as righteous, now go live righteous. God has made us into a body, what we do should look like that body. And here are a couple parts of that. Number one, the church should look like we have been united into a body. Flip over to another passage with me, if you will. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we've brought up this passage numerous times before. There's a whole bunch of truths that are in this right here. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed. Remember that occasion? where he is praying and sweating so intensely, he sweats drops of blood. Remember that? What was Jesus praying for? He was praying for a lot of things, but friends, here is one of the most meaningful parts of this. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed a prayer for his people that would give grace and would be answered for the next however many thousand years it would be until he returned. So he's not praying for cheap little trinkets for you. He is praying the big eternal purposes of God for us. He's praying God's big things that he wants to bring about in you. And here's one of the parts that comes out of that. John 17, look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Jump over to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that's the apostles. He had just prayed some specific things for the apostles. Look what he says next. But for those also who believe in me through their word. That's every believer down through the centuries. We have all come to faith through the work and the message of the apostles in the scriptures. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. 
I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Did you catch how much emphasis Jesus puts there on the church's unity? Three or four times in this passage, he prays that the church would have oneness. And and then did you notice how the model that he gives for that? How much unity should the church have? What did he show? The relationship of the Trinity is the model that is set forth there. So what should the church family look like? Well, look at the relationship of the father to the son. Look at the relationship within the Godhead. And Jesus says, this is what we want. This is what is to be there. So when God speaks of this unity, this is not just some casual, when you're walking down the street, make sure you wave hi to your fellow Christian. This is community. This is unity. This is a family kind of relationship. This is an intimacy. This is a connection that is being talked about here. This is big. Friends, the church, the church is not just some restaurant where you swing in on Sunday mornings, pick up your religion to go, and then make your way out the door as soon as it's over. God intends for there to be community, fellowship, love, a model to the world of the kind of family that the blood of Christ creates. You got to feel the weight of this. To treat the church cheaply is to fail to see the significance of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He died to save you, but he also died to save a people and gather us together. That's what the church should look like. And then secondly, what should the church look like? So many things could have been brought up, but I am bringing up some of the the bigger points that are here. God wants his church to look and be holy. Flip over to Ephesians 5 with me, if you will. Ephesians 5. Got this passage here where God shows us some of the connection between marriage and the way that it is a picture of the eternal work of God in the church. Ephesians 5, find verse 25. Look and see what's said here. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's referring to the leaving of sin, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus wants and he commands the church to be holy. In 1 Corinthians 5, that passage I referenced just a little bit ago, you got that part there where there's a man living in deliberate refusal to obey commands of Christ. He was involved in some sexual sin and he wouldn't leave it. And so God addresses them that they are to put him outside because of his refusal to leave it. And in that passage, God brings up a number of reasons why they were to do this. Because at first read, if you're kind of new to studying the Bible, you come across that, that can sound kind of harsh, sounds mean. Isn't the church to be a place where we welcome everybody? What do you mean somebody's supposed to be kicked out? Well, God does address this. 
And he brings up several reasons why this is to happen. First, they're told that disciplining him would be the best thing that could possibly happen for his soul. Because, because here's why. He thought he was a Christian, but he misunderstood the gospel. And friends, th this is a critical part that is often misunderstood about the gospel. He thought he could pray the little sinner's prayer, get baptized, and then he'd be handed a get-out-of-hell-free card, and then he could do whatever he wanted. No call to any following after Christ. He thought you can be a Christian and refuse to obey Christ. You cannot. That is not the gospel. That is a misunderstanding of the gospel. Number two, the church is told that by doing this, everyone in the church will be helped to understand this truth. If you think about this, if a similar situation happened here, if someone began to openly be involved in some kind of sexual sin or take other kinds of habitual patterns, take a man who was neglecting his family, was not fulfilling his responsibilities to his wife and to his children, and this went on in an ongoing way and nobody ever said anything. It was never addressed. Nobody ever did anything about it. Let me ask you, the youth growing up in our church, what would they think about the gospel? They would come to the conclusion, you can be a Christian and live in defiance of Christ. And you can't. And he says that disciplining him would teach everyone in the church this truth. But then he also comes to this point in the passage. Jesus wants a holy bride. Jesus is not okay with a people claiming his name, but then living in defiance to his law. He's not okay with that. He's not okay with us living like the world. You know, there's a difficulty here. We all who have turned to Christ, we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been legally counted as right with God. We've been given the promise of eternal life, but we're still a group of struggling sinners. We're still a group that at times are ridiculous. Just ask those who live in the same home as us. We're still a people that struggle. So if we're called to be holy and yet we're struggling sinners, how does this work? What's the connection that's here? Friends, what the scripture shows us is there is a massive difference between deliberately choosing to keep sin and the struggle and fight to leave it. It is the intention of the heart. It is our efforts in turning. It is the leaving of deliberate actions of defiance of God. It is the turning of a process of actively warring, battling, and going towards Christ that is holiness. The life of leaving sin, the life of striving to grow in our character, that's a life of holiness. Jesus calls us to this. Jesus demands this. Jesus commands it. So much to say that if we refuse to do it, he says, you cannot be called by my name. So what should the church look like? We should look like a people who are unified. And we should look like a, like a people who are actively following Christ, demonstrating that we're leaving sin. Jesus didn't die 
to forgive us of sin so that we would still remain in it. He bled so that we could be forgiven and then actively lead us out of the practice of living in that sin and going on to him. Well, here's the last thing. Number three, what is God doing with the church? Let me bring up four big parts here. Number one, just kind of a general statement, but there is an important weight here. Number one, God is accomplishing his eternal purposes through the church. If you're in Ephesians, flip over to chapter three for a second. Chapter three and find verse eight. Look at the language that is spoken here. Think of God's big purposes. What is God doing in this world? Chapter three, verse eight. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So what he's being saying here is, Paul's saying, I've been called as a minister. My job is to preach this message that has been a mystery that God is now about displaying to the world to the nations, to the angels, to the enemy. God wants this. He is doing something through this message. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's God doing in this world? Sports is not really what is highest on God's agenda. Money does not make the world go round. All the little trinkets, all the little fads that all in the world get so ate up with for a season of time, give it a quick, brief hundred years, it'll be forgotten. What is God doing? What are his purposes in this world? God is displaying his glory. God is making himself known. He's revealing himself to the nations. God is saving a people. God is building a kingdom. God is preparing the citizens of that kingdom to be able to enter. God is bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. These are the big purposes of God. And here is one of the most significant points to see in this. He's doing all of that through the church. Friends, the church is not a side item to God. And the church ought not be a side item to the Christian. It's not like we come to faith in Christ and, you know, we got all these different parts of what it means to be a Christian. And one part is the church. No, friends, the church is in a place of central importance when it comes to how God is doing what he is doing, there's a calling that comes with that. The church is the tool in God's hands that he is using to accomplish his people, us united together as his people. What is God doing in the church? Doing with the church? Number two, God is building his kingdom. If you think about it just very simply, every disciple, every soul who turns from their sins and embraces Christ at the moment of conversion that's the moment that a citizenship status changes. 
Colossians tells us that at the moment we turn to Christ, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Part of what it means to be in this kingdom of God is he tells us, go get more and bring them in. What's God doing at the church? Number three, God is using the church to transform his people. God wants his children to be a certain kind of people. There's a certain character of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God that he calls us to. One passage amongst many we could look at, Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and then watch this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You know, certain kingdoms in history had a, had a code for their citizens. The Spartans, for instance, had a code that demanded courage of all of their citizens. If for some reason a Spartan citizen showed blatant cowardice, they would be stripped of their citizenship. They wanted the people of their kingdom to be of a certain quality, to be of a certain kind. Friends, similarly, our God wants his people to be a certain kind of people. He wants us to be made into a certain kind of character. He wants his family who bears his name to show some things. What does he want us to be? Well, we've already mentioned the holy part. He wants us to be a people that represent him. We're called ambassadors of Christ. Think about what that means. An ambassador for a nation represents the nation. They speak on behalf of the nation. We are a people who represent Christ to the world. When the world looks at your life, what do they think Jesus is like? Because they're making that judgment. They're coming to conclusions on the gospel, on the authenticity of the church and whether or not these things are true based on your life. We're ambassadors of Christ. And God wants us to demonstrate his character, but God also wants us to be made ready for the kingdom of heaven. There's a way that he is working to equip us. If you're in Ephesians there still, look at chapter four. Find verse 11. One more passage I want to read. Verse 11, look what I see what he says here. Speaking of God's design for the church, follow along with me here. In verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Pause there for just a second. He's just listed off different kinds of leaders, different kinds of workers who are working within the church. Verse 12, why did he do this? For the equipping of the saints, the training, the building up, the strengthening, the making ready of the saints. Why? For the work of service. Why? To the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Look where God wants to bring us. Verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, that's a way of summarizing 
all of the various ways the gifts are used within the church. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What does God want to do with the church? Friends, God is wanting to transform all of us into what? Into a holy people, into a serving and working people. God wants to bring us on to maturity. Here's another way of saying it. God wants to make us into the closest image of Christ that it's possible to have in this world. Jesus, holy, laboring, mature, working for the kingdom of God to grow. This is what God wants to build us up in. When you and I finally are saved, like that final end conclusion, and you take your first step into the kingdom of heaven that is on earth, you will be holy, you will be fully obedient, you will be mature, you will have a character that is exactly like Christ. Right now, God wants us to work so that we come as close to that as is humanly possible this side of glory. And all of the ministry within the church, our ministry to one another, the ministry of the pastors, leaders to the congregation, all of it is to that end. Friends, the church's leaders, our job is not to entertain you. Our job is to train you. The church's leaders, the pastors, our job is not to do the ministry and everybody else receive the ministry. What does the text say? Our job is to invest, equip, train, teach, disciple, so that we are all grown. We are all matured. We're all brought to that full measure so that whenever we all leave here this afternoon, we leave here as missionaries. In every circle of influence, in every workplace, every ball game, everywhere that we go, we're the missionaries that God has turned loose into this world, bringing more into his kingdom. This is God's design. God's design is that through our worship and the ministry of the church, we're all being built up to maturity and brought to a place of holiness and equipping for the work of service. And another way that the Bible will say that. I, I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 1.24, speaking of church leaders, says this. We are workers with you for your joy. Workers with you for your joy. That makes a lot more sense when you come to fully believe. My holiness is my everlasting happiness. And the fruit of the reward for labor done for the sake of the kingdom in this world will be our everlasting gladness. The church's leaders are not doing the ministry simply so that there is reception. It's training and building up. Well, here's one last part that I want to bring up here. What is God doing with the church? Well, we said God's accomplishing his eternal purposes, building his kingdom, he is using the church to transform his people. Here's one last one. Number four, God is using the church to keep you. God is using the church to keep you. 
Hebrews 10, 36 says, you have need of endurance. Jesus said in three different places, he who endures till the end will be saved. Scripture constantly speaks of this reality that our salvation comes by endurance. Now, a lot of times when people hear that, they kind of freak out a little bit. Wait a second, Pastor, I thought we were taught once saved, always saved. Yes. But here's another truth that is always, always, always brought alongside of it. He who endures till the end will be saved. In other words, how do we know who the true Christian is? God, how do I know if I'm truly a Christian or if I'm one of those who has been deceived and deluded? Examine your life. True Christians are those who endure. This is one of the most misunderstood truths that's in connection with the gospel. Friends, it is true. You cannot be unsaved. If you have truly been converted and adopted in the family of God, there is no unadoption with God. It's eternal. He sets his love on you and there is a way that he keeps you. Yet, yet, scripture will say all kinds of things like this. You are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, all that sounds great. Then here's what's said. If, that conditional if, is in so many passages of the Bible. If we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 11, you are in God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Book of Jude says you are kept by the power of God. And a few verses later he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You see both of these brought together? We have to see both of them together. So, yes, it is true. You are held. You are kept by God. But here's the reality. That's the heavenly work of God. Invisible. You can't see it and you have no control over it. He gives you and I responsibility. And we can't sit back on our spiritual couch and just say, God's going to take care of all that saving stuff. I'm just going to take it easy. No, he's called us to something. He's called us to endurance. If we take an attitude of just lackadaisical, let it go saying, I'm sure God's got all of it. Listen to me. You'll shipwreck your faith. You will shipwreck your faith. At the very least, you'll shipwreck your faith. And at the worst, you may find yourself as one of those that Matthew 7 talks about. On the day of judgment, Jesus said, there's going to be a lot of people who are going, Lord, Lord, but what about, what about when I prayed the sinner's prayer at eight years old and got baptized? Depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You have need of endurance, Christian. And here's what Hebrews 10 and other passages of the New Testament show. Sanctification is a community project. You have need of one another. God is using the church to form you. And God is using the church to keep you. And I think that maybe that's one of those truths that is sometimes missed. And sometimes there's that sort of presumptuous kind of Oh, none of that bad stuff will ever happen to me because I'm super excited about Jesus now. Friends, do you not understand? 
Have you ever had a hobby that you eventually grew disinterested in? Didn't come to hate it. You just don't want to do it anymore. For a lot of people, following Christ is like that. It's a hobby. It's a, it's a fad. A brief little something in their lives that they get excited to go to on Sunday mornings. Eventually they lose their interest and then the day comes. Show up or not. Be a part of anything or not. Who cares? How do you know whether or not that will happen to you? How do you know whether or not your faith is genuine? You never saw an angel come down and tell you, you're saved now. What does the Bible say is your assurance? How do you know? First John, look at the road signs in your life. Endurance is what you are to look for. And here's part of the big point. God is using the church as his means of grace to keep us going. He is supplying us with faith and he's using the church to do it. Every one of us, we live in a danger of eventually growing cold, growing numb. And even to the Christian who makes it in the end, it is still possible to drift into a pattern of wasting a great deal of your life, shipwrecking your faith. God is using the church to keep you. Every preacher faces this temptation. Every pastor of a church faces the temptation to eventually see church as his job and lose that zeal. And every Christian, we all face the temptation to just drift into numbness for the fires of our zeal to die, and to cool. God wants to keep you from that. And so friends, this is part of the instructions that God has given the church in our care for one another. This is why we pursue. When a member of the church starts to drift away, let me ask you, what do you think Jesus wants us to do? He wants us to go after them. He talked about going after the straying sheep. That's why this is called shepherding. There is an element of going after. That is why God calls us whenever one of the Christians in your circle of relationships maybe begins to drift into a pattern that you find kind of dangerous. God calls you to speak up, not in a judgy, condemning kind of way, but in a gracious way that does bring some things up. God calls us to have a care for one another that is working for each other's eternal gladness, each other's eternal reward. So bringing us to an end here, Christian, let me, let me give just one quick word of application. Christian, let me exhort you. Lean in. Lean in to the church family. If you keep the church at arm's length, you are harming others robbing others of gifts that God has given you and there's a need, but you're also constricting yourself. Living life in a church family, it isn't all exciting all the time. And if you really start to lean in, it's not gonna produce this instant kind of like, oh, this is what I've been missing all my life. No, some days I'm annoying and so are you. <laughs> there's difficulty, 
there's difficulty in living with a group of sinners. There's challenges. There's, we all got our stuff. But you will find this. You will find, you lean in. You begin to invest yourself more in the fellowship. You will begin to notice slow and gradual progress and strengthening in your life. This is part of the miracle of God in using his people for ministry. And let me say something to you if you have not yet turned to Christ. If there has never been a time that you know you have come to Christ, you know you have come to him to be saved like the Bible says, you're still on the outside of God's people. You're still looking in at something that you're not drinking of. You've not yet embraced. There's a kingdom you need transferred out of. There's a kingdom you need brought into. And the only way it will come is whenever you decide to leave your sin, leave rebellion, turn your heart to Christ, bow to him, intending and committing to follow him. And you place your faith in him. And the scripture says when you turn like that in faith and you call out to him, God in that moment will work the world of miracles to bring you to himself. Let's pray. Our God, um, there's no way we can express the gratitude we ought to for what you've done. Lord, just the more we learn, the more amazed we become. Thank you for saving us. And God, thank you for bringing us to be a part of your people. Adoption as your sons and daughters. God, help us as a church family that we will live this. God, I pray we'll be intentional. God, I pray that you deepen and sweeten the fellowship, Lord, and that real ministry will happen and that we'll mobilize, oh God, to reach, um, reach this community and the nations with the gospel. And as Keith and LaVon join the church, uh, Father, please bless them. Pray for many, many years of great um, fellowship and ministry to be done together, oh God. Please bless us. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Members of One Another. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.